the way that we are going to succeed in these changes that we're making to financial and other systems is through changing the narratives, building movements, and then ensuring that the change agents have the tools and the practices that would enable them to be effective. What would the world be like if justice were normal? What if our systems defaulted to anti-bias and pro-Earth policies, programs, and practices? I'm Monique Aiken, your guide for Into the Record, a podcast from the Make Justice Normal Collective on a mission to foster just relationships and collective action among people working to make justice normal. In each episode, we'll hear from changemakers who interrogate history and the status quo. They are forging a new imagination of what's possible as we create new systems where justice is the default and injustice the stuff of history books. Our guest today is Dr. Julian Marcel, the founder and chief executive officer of Resilience Capital Ventures. My call to justice is very personal because at the tender age of 21, I was struck by personal tragedy and trauma when my eldest brother, who had converted to Islam, was killed in police custody. I remember my brother, who was a strong advocate for anti-apartheid, standing at the back of an auditorium for an event that I had organized, challenging Caribbean people to be less about the talk and more about the walk. And he said, what are you doing here, sitting in St. Augustine, talking about the struggle in South Africa? Why aren't you there? And that was September 1984. Growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, I was surrounded by freedom fighters and revolutionaries particularly because in my childhood, there was an important black power revolution in 1970. My father was fiercely nationalistic, very proud. He often waged one-man protests against racism and classism. And my mother, I think, is my living example of what feminist values look like in a day-to-day manner because she was always involved in women's well-being. And so growing up in my household, it was quite normal to express oneself in terms of interests in social justice and academic excellence. Those early years really set me up to be very active in student politics. The 1980s was a very heady time for politics because having, in a sense, solved the anti-Black racism in the 70s, the decade before, the political interests moved on to Pan-Africanism and anti-colonialism. And in the 1980s, the Caribbean was very much steeped in what was the radical revolutionary movement in Grenada. And in my case, I extended all of that into women's rights and being very interested in gender equality and founding the very first 
uh, expression of women's rights as part of the student movement formally at my university, the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine. A decade later, South Africa had achieved democracy. And in 1998, I moved to South Africa. My purpose has, for a very long time, been being a bridge. Having earned multiple degrees in business administration and international economics, worked in mergers and acquisitions, specializing in telecoms, finance, and policy, it is to South Africa that I took those skills and was able to participate in the formation of institutions and then very specifically from 1998 to 2004 I was very heavily involved in founding two women's organizations that responded to the rapidly changing technological era that at the time we used to call the information society and I've been uh, very very privileged to do work with feminists, young feminists in South Africa. And I remember saying to them that I take my feminism wherever I go and encouraging them to see tackling inequality and inequity as part of one's feminism. And right now, as the leader of a capital advisory practice, Resilience Capital Ventures, based in Washington, D.C., I am bridging and combining 30 plus years of experience gained in four continents with the foundation that I have from Caribbean civilization to bridge financial capital with other forms of capital and to deliver that in packages, products and services to make the world a better place and to bring all forms of capital to underserved regions. And so our clients and partners at Resilience Capital Ventures include large mission-focused think tanks like PolicyLink, foundations like the Clinton Foundation. We've worked with private equity funds like the MPC Caribbean Clean Energy Fund, special purpose vehicles like the MPC Energy Solutions, and we now have a mandate for a multi-year program with sovereigns on their multi-year sustainable investment objectives. And I very often have to connect the dots and draw the lines the connecting threads between my commitment to social justice and operating within high finance. We take those financial chops and add to them the 40 years of experience of my senior colleagues in risk structures, in uh, green bonds, in climate bonds. And we offer those as solutions to parts of the world that would not ordinarily be considered because of cognitive bottlenecks. We're proudly now five years old. We have been able in those five years to demonstrate that 
we have the financial expertise to move beyond the biases and blind spots that permeate global capital. And we also understand that there are structural bottlenecks that prevent women from getting to decision-making levels within finance. And so when we show up as a team that is led by a Black woman, that is also a demonstration of what is possible. So it takes my academic and political interest in feminism, which has been as important and influences any other, into the doing. And so I think that my walk towards justice, what Madiba called a long walk away from inequity and unfairness, is one that I don't do alone. I am accompanied by my brother and his fierce commitment to challenging injustice wherever he saw it. In recent years, you've become a recognized voice on LinkedIn and also a contributor to published works, such as the book, The Business of Building a Better World, to your very point of living that purpose. The chapter that you contributed to was entitled Transforming Business, Transforming Value. And you've advised investors, multilateral institutions and governments like you just shared. So can you tell us more about the ways that you use your voice specifically to advance the impact economy and why you do so so intentionally and the purpose of that tool? I very much believe that the way that we are going to succeed in these changes that we're making to financial and other systems is through changing the narratives, building movements, and then ensuring that the change agents have the tools and the practices that would enable them to be effective. So the work on LinkedIn and the work on in speaking and writing and contributing to books as well as writing articles and blogs and so on is part of that narrative change work. How can we leverage this to deliver needed social environmental change for the world? As in, how can the rest of us understand how to do this like you? I know that you've been seeing me on LinkedIn challenging, showing up to challenge injustice very frontally and without pretense. And in the last few months, I've also been making the point that dismay is not a luxury that many in the world can afford and that I am inspired by many of the leaders and our leaders, including the late Reverend Tutu, who spoke about hope as a discipline and being a prisoner of hope. And so I engage actively and with great energy. My mother says that that is part of what marks me because apparently... I didn't wait to be born. I didn't wait for the midwife and 
my grandmother to help her. I just decided that I was ready. In my own personal practice, I make a point of drawing on the things that inspire, like music, poetry, art, so that when we come out fighting, which we must do, because systems change is a contact sport for grown-ups, and there will be betrayals, there will be sabotage, there will be resistance, there will be backlash. But if we are engaged in this work as a collective, and we are drawing on all of our resources, including art and culture, I think that we will triumph. And so in preparing for this conversation, I came across a new poem, relatively new poem by Ben Okri, which I'd like to share. So Ben Okri from a new book has a poem called Earth Cries, in which I'll read an extract. He says, how do you get the ears of the world to listen without fear and to listen with courage? We need a new language that howls and caresses at the same time. A new language that frightens and gives hope simultaneously, that tells the truth and transcends the truth in the same breath. For the human being is a frail vessel that cannot take the light and yet cannot face the darkness. I found that to be tremendously inspiring. And of course, it echoes so much with our own work on illuminating blind spots and shining a light into the areas of this work that often are scary in doing the work of taking on racialized capitalism and in designing solutions that work and in putting forward new ideas and supporting others who are engaged in this work, we suggest that the way forward for hopeful action can include efforts to widen the solution space, which means that we're drawing on bodies of knowledge and different types of practices. We're extending beyond modern Western capitalism to actually draw on ways of knowing and being and seeing and understanding the world that have so much to offer. And we are also being ready to confront crises coming out of COVID. And I think that this is a sense of the intensity that is required. But then we must also rest and we must also lean into joy. And we must also work where we enroll and deploy solidarity and have ways of working with our teams, with our countries, in our families, and with the wider community that 
as Anne Price reminds us, actually allows us to invoke joy. You mentioned our shared friend, Anne Price, a woman who I deeply admire and her work naming and including joy specifically into the effort. So where is the path to joyfulness, despite the seriousness of the work ahead? Simple things like, you know, going to movies and being able to essentially chill out and disconnect from the troubles and tribulations and to dance the celebratory rituals and moments and opportunities for release, I think are very important. And bringing that into our ways of being, our ways of being in daily life and in community. To just go in a slightly different direction, what is the most important value to center in this collective work that you've described and How do we consider the effect of our work today on the lives of those coming seven generations from now? Because what will remain is that kernel of what we have input in terms of the value, the the enduring principle. I would say perseverance and detachment from outcomes. It may sound a bit dark, but I have a very good friend And we often speak about the fact that many of the people who've made the most profound contributions to social justice did not live to see their 40th birthdays. And so we were recently looking at the foreword to Walter Rodney's, one of Walter Rodney's books that has been redone, and his daughter wrote that some people are good at writing, some people are good at teaching, some people are good at inspiring others in movements, but there are few people who are good at all of them. And she, you know, was remarking to her late father, who's no longer there, that he was good at all of those things. And he was killed at 38. And so... Not all of us are one-in-a-generation influences like Walter Rodney, but what I gain from considering the kind of effort, sacrifice, determination, and perseverance is that even if we have a fraction of those in our own walk, we will make valuable contributions. And so I I also think that intellectual curiosity and being interested in the ways in which things work and and how they operate is another value that I believe is important for making a difference and for changing the world. You also mentioned in your collective action comments earlier, that we need to work together and in solidarity. But where have you found unlikely allies in that work? Because I think we need all of us, we need a mobilization, we need a force, we need an army. So where have you found unexpected shared beliefs and synchronicity in this work? Well, right now it's not so unexpected anymore, but in 2021, I did 
a lot of work with Jed Emerson, and we co-authored that chapter that you mentioned. One of the other ways it used to be is that um, our work at RCV and my own work is very intergenerational. And so I work with younger people and I also have my own set of mainly feminists, I'll name check some of them, (laughs) who are my own sort of personal advisory team and have been for many years. That includes my dear friend, Buni Matlani Sekwale, Julie Oyagun, my PhD supervisor, Robin Mansell, and even going back to when I interned at the National Research Council with uh, MacArthur awardee, Professor Heidi Hartman. Those are such influential or strong influences in, in what I do and how I show up. And very recently, I had the opportunity also to interact quite a bit with some of the Caribbean feminists, Eudine Barito from Barbados and Asha Cambon in Trinidad and Tobago, a reminder of the strong pools and the deep pools from which we can draw. This is work that will involve many different kinds of actors, whether it's academics, whether it's advocates, whether it's community leaders, philanthropists, advisors. But there are very few spaces for collective action that is aimed, as Ben Okri asks us to do, to both consider the light and the darkness. Social media tends to either be very negative or cheerleadingly positive. And so it's not a space for critical engagement, but solidarity building venues and spaces are very much needed because that is how we will be able to improve the work both on a global basis and then within individual countries. So, you know, right now in August of 2023, there's been that lawsuit against a Black-led venture capital company, Black female-led venture capital company. And my thought is that if clear-thinking, justice-oriented individuals had done a better job, and I include myself in this, of creating venues, platforms, and methods of operating in solidarity, we would be able to mount, and I still hope we are able to, mount a resistance to that lawsuit, as well as to deliver an unintended consequence, which is a blow to the forces of darkness that are behind that effort. And so I do think that um, finding ways to build and grow 
with collective energy is an important part of the work still to be done. And when I think about the 1980s, there were big movements like the anti-apartheid struggle that united justice-oriented people all around the world. And I think we need to have and to speak about the poly crisis and climate response and anti-racism in those terms so that we can mobilize the energies and the talents of people all around the world. That was Dr. Jillian Marcel. My IQ literally shoots up with each conversation I have with her. I'm grateful to her for her friendship and her longtime support of Make Justice Normal, even before we had a name for the organization. And for those who don't know, Jillian was the inspiration for the name of this very podcast. And to our listeners, we're grateful for your time. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Marcel, you can visit resiliencecapitalventures.com. Into the Record is produced by Make Justice Normal in partnership with Pod People. We'd like to thank everyone on the MGN core team, Anjali Deshmukh, Carrie Hansen, Erica Seth Davies, and Sharnay Robinson-Williams. A special thanks to Kristen Engberg and the Racial Equity Asset Lab for their generous support. And at Pod People, Alex McManus, Matt Stav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Shay Wodis, Kinsey Clark, and Morgan Foose. I'm Monique Aiken, co-founder of Make Justice Normal, co-founder of the Restarter Fund, contributing editor at Impact Alpha, and managing director at TIP, the Investment Integration Project. To learn more about Make Justice Normal, visit us at makejusticenormal.org or subscribe to our Substack at the same name. Follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram at MJN Now. The MJN Collective has additional programs and products that we are resourcing. We welcome ideas for aligned philanthropic donors and or sponsors. Reach out to learn more about the research we're leading, tools we're testing, and models we're prototyping. Send ideas or feedback to me at monique at makejusticenormal.org. Thanks for listening and helping us write justice into the record.